Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Euro 84 for me was the greatest football tournament I've seen, obviously, being a boy at the time. There was a real chance that was maybe just nostalgia on my part. Growing up in a Spanish household, the Spain 82 World Cup and the host nation's underwhelming campaign hadn't sat well in our home, especially with my dad, a football obsessive. The thing is, Not many people in the UK got to see as much of the tournament as my dad and I did, with neither England nor any of the home nations qualifying for the eight-team tournament in France. UK broadcasters only deigned to show two live matches. The rest would be served up as scrappy late-night highlights. I was fortunate enough that my relatives on my dad's side, just a 20-minute walk away from us in South London, had an early form of cable TV and were recording all the games for my dad. And together with him, I managed to catch most of them and was bowled over by the quality of the football that summer. I'd simply seen nothing like it before or since, for that matter. But I knew that I couldn't rely on the recollections of a boy who shortly after the tournament was over would be spending £5 on what I was convinced was a genuine leather jacket from my local Woolworths on Clapham High Street. I needed to put my recollections to the test and find out if the 1984 European Championships were as good as I'd held them to be for most of my life. I needed to speak to someone who was there. Growing up and getting into football like most boys of my age, I obsessed as much over the commentators as I did my favourite players. Brian Moore, ITV's commentator for games involving London teams, was the commentary entry point for my generation and I never lost my love for him. David Coleman, he of the Campes 1-0, was a little before my time, but that's something I always regretted because I suspect he would have been my favourite all-time commentator. I loved that voice and the simple statement of a goal, as if he was sat in a nail salon, distracted, having a manicure and had simply glanced up the TV and managed to catch a goal. And of course, there was the great Peter Jones, radio's master commentator. No one quite pronounced Sooness like he did. There'll never be another Peter Jones. 
As I got older, as much as watching games, I wanted to read about football and moving through my teens, I had my favourite football writers, but I'd hit my early 20s before I discovered the man who has probably been my favourite football journalist for the last 25 years. Patrick Barkley was writing for the Sunday Telegraph and I could never get enough of his work, both in print or as increasingly became common in the 90s and noughties on our TV screens as our coverage began to feature more and more writers as TV analysts as had been the case on the continent for years. And Paddy Barkley was in France for the 1984 European Championships. Then with The Guardian and under the paper's chief football writer of that era, David Lacey, Paddy was part of a quartet of writers covering the tournament and sending over match reports for a country that simply didn't appear to care that it was missing out on this incredible tournament. I caught up with Paddy the morning after his beloved Dundee had secured a return to the Scottish Premiership and I suspect the late night celebrating had added to the marvellous quality of that deep timbre. So here's our look back at Euro 84. Just how special was that French team of Platini, Tigana, Duress and Fernandez? Could the dashing Danes emerging as a real force in world football stop them? What about the West Germans? You could never discount them. And would Miguel Munoz's Spanish side, perennial dark horses, do anything of note at this tournament? Here's Patrick Barkley. Patrick, before we get into the tournament itself, let's look at where you were in your career as a football journalist in 84. I was lucky enough to discover your work when the Sunday Telegraph briefly became my go-to Sunday paper in the mid-90s. But around 84, you'd already been with The Guardian for some time. Tell us about your career up to that point. uh, I joined, uh, I started writing, I'd been on The Guardian for quite a few years, but on uh, as a news sub-editor, and due to a change of circumstances, I had the opportunity to get my dream job, which is as a football writer in Manchester in 1976. So, by the time Euro 84 came along, the 1984 European Championship, as we called it then, you know, I'd been in the job about eight years. And luckily, fortunately, I was still uh, what we, you know, we talk about number ones and number twos on papers. And number one was the great David Lacey. My, this was my great piece of luck that I was very much junior to David while he went away with the rest of the English press to England's uh, tour of friendlies in South America, I was, you know, leading our, well, in fact, I was <laughs> our, our team at the 1984 European Championship. I was supplanted by David when the England tour ended and he came back for the semi-finals and final. But uh, it was, I, I, I was lucky enough to stay on and see the games. You know, it, it it was really lucky that I was at that stage of my career because I suppose if I'd, such was the feeling about football in those days that if I'd been the senior correspondent, which I, I later became on, on other papers, then I would have been forced to go to South America with England and, and would therefore have missed the bulk of what remains the best tournament I I ever covered in terms of consistent quality. I was I was not at a, a full stage of development in my, my career, but I was in the right place at the right time to be one of a party of, of a small party of 
British journalists who covered the games. Um, I remember we used to joke about it, and it was only half joke actually, because it was partly true, that we travelled. Uh, the British press travelled in in one car around France <laughs> with uh, a Michelin guide in uh, to the restaurants in the uh, in one hand and the fixture list in the other. It was almost like it was. I mean, we joke, but it was it was almost literally true. I can remember. I can remember the games, but I can remember certain restaurants that we went into. When I say the Michelin guide, I mean the one to the affordable restaurants. I don't mean these shishi places that that get Michelin stars now, but they it's the local places. And I remember it must have been on the day before one of the games in Strasbourg, we came across this restaurant in Alsace, which had got very high ratings. And we went into this village of perhaps, you know, two men and a dog. And we thought, well, how on earth does a tiny village like this support a restaurant? We drove into the... Uh, followed the directions to the car park and it was like Wembley car park there must have been a hundred cars in the, in the car park at this lunch place and we went in we were probably quite naive at the time it was one of those places where they bring you the you know the the, the soup in a giant tureen and the charcuterie you know the sausage and all that they just bring you it on a board with a knife and of course we we thought it was all for us instead of, you know, passing it on to the next table. So we polished by the time the main course came. We had soup and, and sausage coming out of our ears and we couldn't eat another thing. But we were a very happy time because the, um, the the newspapers didn't want huge coverage. We, we described it as 300 words a day and the rest of the time devoted to finding a restaurant. But it, it was it was idyllic. It, it really was. I mean... Two of the lads, I can remember, two of the four, obviously it was me, uh, but uh, Brian Woolner, who later became, you know, rightly famous for uh, his uh, presentation of Sunday Supplement on Sky TV. He, he's no longer with us. And my best friend in football journalism, Clive White, was also part of our group. Clive was on the Times at the time. Clive, unfortunately, died uh, three years ago. So, you know. Mixture of memories, but it was great camaraderie on the road with Her Majesty's press corps of, I think it was four people at first. I really do. But what football we saw and and how we loved it and how frustrated we were, to be honest, that it wasn't the biggest show in town because we felt we were at the centre of the world. Was this your second or third international tournament? It was my third tournament. My first tournament was the 1980 European Championships in Italy, where I, I get, you know, obviously I was very much junior to David Lacey on the Guardian. Then um, the 82 World Cup in Spain, where again, because I, I, I was junior, David got the, <laughs> the dreadful games up in Bilbao with England, and I once again got the, the plum job covering <laughs> in the in Seville and uh, Malaga. We stayed on the Costa del Sol along with the holidaymakers and we were watching Brazil. We were one of the greatest nights of football I ever experienced was Brazil 4, Scotland 1 in Seville. I can remember going home, not getting home until daybreak because that was just such a wonderful football night. Fans, journalists, everybody who was privileged enough to be there. Zico, Eder, you know, and David Neri. Um, and... <laughs> 
so it, it was just it was wonderful and 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 then when the group stage finished in 82 i went up to um i was sent up to barcelona it just got better and better and uh i watched in the old saria stadium which now no longer exists in barcelona i watched the classic three two italy three brazil two again one a game that will you know would be of my top five footballing experiences of all time so it, it was just pinch yourself and uh and then it, 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 how could it get better? Only one way. In 1984 European Championship in France. And uh, just mentioning the 82 World Cup there, this country had form when it came to not showing games. The yeah. opening game of the 82 World Cup, and obviously that was because of the Falklands conflict, but Argentina-Belgium wasn't shown on yeah. British TV. We go to Euro 84, where only two live games are shown and yeah. the reason I wanted to speak to you about it is because it is a strangely overlooked tournament it's for me personally probably the best international tournament that I remember yeah. um you mentioned England and their tour of South America that summer of course England yeah. had failed to qualify for yeah. Euro 84 Denmark had beaten them 1-0 at Wembley and that helped the Danes to get to to France Really, had the Danes served notice on England a year earlier because there was that 2-2 draw in Copenhagen, Bobby Robson's first game, when the Danes yes. had just completely outplayed England. And it had been England had just returned from the World Cup unbeaten. It was, you know, obviously yeah. an aging team. Bobby Robson had to break it up. But yeah. Denmark was still Denmark. They were, you yeah. know, they were supposed <clears throat> to be minnows of the game at that time. And this yes, was something I remember, different. I can remember it was at uh, the early stages of the tabloid war in Britain in England mainly, but I, I can remember, yeah, we've been beaten by a team of bacon slicers, you know, uh, uh, you know, the usual uh, uh, xenophobic rubbish, you know, foisted on Britain by, uh, by foreign newspaper owners such as Maxwell and Murdoch. The irony in that, uh, I never quite managed to get to the bottom of it but you know so we have a bunch of foreigners telling us that we don't like a bunch of foreigners basically that and, and sure enough if if england lost to switzerland you 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 you'd have lost to a nation whose only distinction is making cuckoo clocks or something you know it was it was this kind of stuff went on all the time instead of uh, examining how good denmark were um i mean i had a friend i still have a friend called jim holden who's half danish and who said look you know, who would warn me that this team was was something, was really something. So I was lucky enough to have a bit of an inkling of that. But no, the the, the country as a whole didn't appreciate it. And and this was because the, the media, they weren't football lovers. They used football to propagate their product in the same way as Sky Television was later to do. But they didn't like football. And the country wasn't really in love with football. I mean, bear in mind that we hadn't even reached the nadir of Hazel Stadium in 1985. So football wasn't a particularly popular pastime. Uh, it wasn't, sorry, it was, it was popular, but it wasn't liked in the way it is now. Uh, consequently, there was, because England hadn't qualified for the tournament, the tournament uh, wasn't taking place in, in their eyes. And, and I, I really despised the television authorities for that. What what I would say is, look at Ireland. The Irish in 1984, the Irish TV formed a reputation as the best football pundits in the English language during that tournament with the likes of Dunphy, 
uh, John Giles and so on. And British television, you know, banditry is, is, for, for decades afterwards was unfit, where it was compared unfavorably with Irish because the Irish actually took an interest in the game of football. Uh, whereas we were only interested in football as a form of chauvinism, as a form of nationalism. But anyway, I, I, I wasn't complaining. You know, I was, I was, I, I took advantage of that. I was, I was there at the, at the tournament, and although it was annoying not to get much in the papers, I was kind of expecting it. You know, it's interesting. Just going off on a tangent, there you mention uh, the Irish punditry. It's something I've often asked Irish friends. We're, we're talking about a country that doesn't have a major football league yet even now yeah. i would still say that irish the, the the irish coverage of the premier league with their pundits yeah. and the champions yeah. league it's still better than what we offer even though we've improved massively here certainly on yeah. you know vt sport and sky but the likes yeah. of dumphy giles sunes <laughs> goes over there i mean it's you can you can just click on youtube and you're riveted by what these guys are saying you know yeah they speak with freedom I can see the irony. You know, this is a country that was, until Jack Charlton, you know, it, it took over as manager, was 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 really a rugby country more than a football country, despite the brilliant punditry. But yes, it, it, it's absolutely true. I think it's a cultural thing. I think that they're, the Irish, I mean, I don't want to theorise myself into a vortex here but uh, you know the irish tradition of wordsmiths you know going back to you know swift wild uh, it, it's there uh, maybe it's a maybe it's a long way from that even to the 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 eminent dumphy giles and and brady but you know you know what i mean it, 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 culturally it, it is much more free and also they don't have a fear of candor the way the english do I mean, I can remember loads of times being on Sunday Supplement and Wooly, Brian Woolno, God rest his soul, and uh, later Neil Ashton. If I said something really firm and, and maybe controversial, they'd sort of wince and go, ooh, <laughs> don't sit on the fence, you know. And, and I felt like saying to them, oh, you want mealy-mouth bullshit, do you? And sometimes watching the program, I wondered if that was what they wanted rather than uh, straightforward, straight-talking uh, and, and no prisoners. That's, in my opinion, why 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 the Irish are better pundits than us. I mean, I even remember when we're in a great day of football punditry in in our, in our country, one of the one of the best, well, two of the best actually were, were Irish people, Martin O'Neill, and uh, early before that, Derek Dugan. You know, if you look back over good punditry in in uh, English football coverage, a brief volume until Gary Neville came along, but. You, you would uh, you definitely see an Irish influence in that as well. So I just think, yeah, the, the English should just lighten up and, and deliver opinions. You know, don't don't be frightened of candor. Don't be frightened of being straight. That would be my uh, perhaps over intellectualized analysis of the situation. It almost feels like rather than talking about a period that's just eight years before the advent of the Premier League, that we, you know we could be talking about 30, 40 years before the advent yes. of the Premier League. You know, there, there's this quartet of uh, British journalists on what is amounting to a road trip in France. Yeah, this was. glorious tournament unfolding um, yeah. before them. At my end, growing up in a Spanish family, we had mm. access to cable TV, early cable TV through relatives. So this mm. tournament, after the near disgrace of the Spain 82 World Cup, where mm. the, the host nation just didn't perform, this was a, yeah. a big deal for us. The format for Euro 84 
differed slightly from the 80 European Championships. It was still yeah. eight teams, but this time it was introduced in semi-finals. Just three survivors from the 80 Championships, West Germany, Belgium and Spain. World Cup holders Italy, they hadn't made it. I think I remember that being a, a, a big shock at the time. I think it's happened mm. uh, once or twice yeah. before that. But let's look at the, the groups. Uh, group one, France, Denmark, Belgium, Yugoslavia, France after a poor start in the World Cup two years earlier. They'd lost their opening game to England. They progressed to the semi-finals where they lost on penalties in a a stunning game to to West Germany. Had we seen enough in Spain 82 to suggest that Michel Hidalgo's team were close to emerging as as a great team? Yeah, well, maybe not in competitive matches, but I remember in... June the 1st, June the 2nd, I think it was, something like that, 1984, just before the tournament started, I went to Marseille to cover a friendly between France and Scotland. And the Marseille pitch, I'll never forget the pitch at the velodrome, was it was like a bowling green. It, it was the best pitch I've ever seen in my life. And cut short, cut very short, but very, very green. And Scotland had... Miller and McLeish at centre-back, Jim Leighton in goal, Strachan, <laughs> a reasonable team. But my God, it was the most one-sided game of football I've ever seen in my life at any level. I think Scotland might have been in possession for two to three minutes out of 90. France scored twice in the first half hour and then just, you know, just passed the ball about and enjoyed themselves. And Gires on that pitch, can you imagine? I mean, one of the best passes even France has ever produced. And on that pitch, it was, honestly, it was a joy to watch. And I'm a Scotland supporter, and I felt like cheering. So I thought, well, if this is them in a friendly, if they can take that form into the tournament, they'll be good. But I would be lying if I said that I foresaw the magnificence of, of, of how that midfield would be almost throughout the tournament and in particular the leader of the midfield Michel Platini I mean I don't want to spoil the ending but in five matches he scored nine goals can you imagine if Harry Kane did that you know in in the tournament it was it was an astonishing it was to be repeated I, I, I was going to say unique contribution by an individual to a tournament but of course it was emulated 100% 100% only two years later by Diego Maradona in in the World Cup of 1986. But uh, these were the two, with the possible exception of Pele in 1958, these were the two great individual contributions to an international tournament of all time. And Platini started it off. The midfield was a perfect balance of uh, Fernandez, the hard man who could play, Tigana with the pace, and the penetration on the right right flank, inside right, uh, Gires, the, the the master passer, and uh, Platini fitting in wherever he damn well pleased. It was uh, you know you can't talk about great midfield quartets of all time without mentioning that one, uh, and probably placing it number one. Fernandez, I think he was a new addition, yeah. wasn't he? That that summer from the eighty two World the, Cup, he was the backbone. You know, he was the enforcer. And and what a difference he did make. There was a fair amount of physique, uh, mainly concentrated in uh, Fernandez and Leroux, the centre-back. 
who was a bit of an item. So they had they had a they had a bit of steel as well as the as well as the velvet. Group two had the defending champions West Germany. They were up against Spain, Portugal, and Romania. Spain had made the finals in controversial circumstances. They had to beat Malta by eleven clear goals. That they missed a penalty. They still won twelve one, meaning the Dutch failed to make it. West Germany, though, they they'd gone into the eighty two World Cup under Jupp Derwell as arguably Europe's strongest side. But mm-hmm. even though they'd reached the final there, they'd underwhelmed in, in Spain. They'd lost to Algeria. They, they got through the semifinals against France on penalties. Mm. They'd been somewhat fortunate to reach Euro 84 too, hadn't they? Yes, they were, they were expected to do well. Uh, they had a spine to the team, the infamous Tony Schumacher in goal, Karl-Heinz Förster at, uh, at centre-back. Um, Bremer was around as well, and uh, Rudy Voller up up front. So yeah, they had a they had a fair amount of of ability. And and as always with the Germans, where you know when you roll roll off the favourites, you can't miss them out. The Belgians had surprised everyone, reaching the finals in Italy four years earlier. They'd had a mm. half decent World Cup. They'd reached the second group stages that year. They now had a remarkable 18-year-old talent in their ranks, Enzo Schifo. Um, Italian parentage, I think the Italians had tried to get him to declare for their national team. Tell us about him, because when we talk about the brilliant playmakers of that era, he's sometimes forgotten. And I, I wonder if that's because in terms of his club football, he never settled in one place, moved around a lot, had, I think, seven or eight clubs, Four years at Anderlecht at the start of his career, the longest period he had anywhere. I mean, 1990, he's still only 24. And um, he, he gave England almost a masterclass in that um, famous 1-0 win to England. But that, that was yeah. the tournament where he announces himself. What do you remember about him? Well, I, I just remember, I suppose it was the one of the early reminders of European borders being blurred, you know, that, I, I mean, True, France had had Just Fontaine, and 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 people had had emigre players, but before, but somehow this Italian playing for Belgium. I mean, now you look at the Belgian team, and and you've got what eight ethnicities in a squad of twenty five, something like that. But uh, in those days, it was a reminder that Italian flair and glamour could come in a Belgian package. So this this just added to the exotica of this 18-year-old boy who who could take a game by the by the scruff of its neck. He wasn't alone. I mean there were other there were other great talents. I mean I was always a uh, a huge fan of Jan Kult, the captain Jan Kulemans who to this day remains you, you talk about underrated. I mean it, it, you know Kulemans would be anyone who played I guarantee you that anybody who played on the same park as Jan Kuhlman would say he would call him a great player. Probably because of those two, it was it was an exceptional side and took part in possibly the best match. I would definitely say Denmark against Belgium was my favourite match of that tournament. OK, well, we'll come to that shortly. Uh, meantime, yeah. we, we've talked about uh, Denmark um, and you mentioned your friend had given you the heads up on yeah. what, a, what an exceptional team were emerging. Um, Sepp Piontek uh, was a former West German international. Yeah. The, the job he did with Denmark was remarkable and 
just so easy on the eye as well, that team to watch. Not something that you always associated with the um, the great West Germany teams. Mm. Same same um, tactics, though. It was it was it, it had a German look because it had a, a Beckenbauer, a free man at the back, a libero. And that was uh, Morten Olsen, uh, who survives to this day. And in my opinion, was uh, uh, and it was it was probably suitable that they had a, a German coach because you know the Germans would have killed after uh, after Beckenbauer. They didn't really get a great libero until uh, 1996 and Matthias Sammer. But Morten Olsen could definitely have done that for any team in the world. He was one of the best liberos that I've ever seen and he very much set the tempo of the team what a footballer a, a lovely constructive player from the back and I, I, I feel that often watching Glenn Hoddle play that role at, at Tottenham I, I used to I, I used to swear that he must have been influenced by, by Morton Olsen but again if you go through the Denmark team uh, another of whom much was to be heard in later years Frank Arneson Chelsea and other places. He he was one of the leading goal scorers of the tournament. Yeah, the, I mean, I'm going through the lineup here. Soren Lerby, yeah. Lerby, you know, had a had a great career. All round midfield player, could win a tackle, could pass, could score the odd goal. Michael Laudrup, for heaven's sake, um, one of the great artists. Later went went to Spain and played for the top clubs then. Uh, there was Soren Busk at the back, Nielsen, Bergrin, the hard worker, little busy, busy player. Bergrin and Bertelsen, I remember they they were always on the move, always on the move, creating the the, the movement off which the likes of Arneson, the art Arneson and Lerby could thrive. And I've left my favourite player to the last, and that's uh, Previn Elkiar, uh, Elkiar Larsen, as he later preferred to be called and and became a, a star uh, in uh, Verona very dynamic him. player uh to me he was you're too young to remember Roy of the Rovers but to me he was Roy of the Rovers he fulfilled every schoolboy's dream the way he played dynamic is the word he was big he was fast he had the confidence to uh, he had the sort of confidence of of someone like um, Berbatov he had that swagger of Berbatov, and he was just just utterly magnificent. I remember, I think it was in that great game against Denmark, and he scored a run-through goal and just rolled it past the keeper. And honestly, just the memory of it still sends shivers down my spine. I loved Preben Elkjar Larsen. So, that, you know, it was a, it was a terrific, uh, terrific team, really, from from front to back and had a bit of everything but the dash the Roy of the Rovers dash and Elan of of Elkia was was the was the icing on the cake for me we've mentioned um some of the great players that that graced that tournament we've mentioned some of the new names that were going to become established names uh, the likes of uh, Shifo and, and Laudrup meantime mm-hmm. the Yugoslavs had Dragan Stojkovic who who's I think 19 during the tournament over in group two, the Romanians have a teenage George Hadji in their ranks. So, you know, we're looking at the emergence of talent that is going to grace the game for the next 10, 12 years. Yes. The tournament kicks off with the hosts, France playing Denmark in group one. Many would have thought that 
could have been a dress rehearsal for the final. In your opinion, were those the two best sides in the tournament or, or were there any other yes, takers? Yes, although it, as is often the case, there was no hint of it at the time. I've got this theory about international tournaments that you never know if you're watching a great team until after the final. I mean, a perfect example for me was 1998, where we get to the final, it's Brazil against France, and we imagine that that Brazil are going to emerge as a great team. They've got the best player in the world in Ronaldo, and France have been all right, but with a few narrow escapes and in, the, in their own home ground World Cup. And then France win 3-0. Ronaldo and the rest of the Brazilians play like zombies. And France are hailed as a great team. Laurent Blanc, yeah, one of the great footballing defenders, you know, blah, 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 although Laurent Blanc didn't play in the final. But greatness is, it, you never know if you're in the, in the presence of greatness until after the final, or very, very seldom. Perhaps 1958 would be different. So there was no hint in this opening match. It was a fairly dull game. And we've talked about Danish players, but their best, their most noted player going into the tournament probably was Alan Simonsen, who uh, suffered a broken leg in, in that game. I, I may be wrong, but I think it was in a tackle with the aforementioned Yvonne Leroux. Yeah. And so that, that cast a bit of a, a shadow over the event, although... Denmark, of course, didn't let it let it put them off. Just on that Siemensen leg break, he doesn't really recover from that, does he, as a, as a top player? He goes to Mexico 86, but he's on the fringes yeah. then. The team has moved on without him. I'm afraid so. It, it, it sometimes happens to players like like that, the, you know, a turning point, but not in a good way. And uh, yes, that was that was really unfortunate because he was a... Uh, he was a world-class player. There's no no question about that. His career didn't bring him personally uh, what it deserved to do. Yes, a transfer to Charlton Athletic, but <laughs> he'd probably have preferred the Ballon d'Or. The other two sides in Group One. So we should say France win the opening game one uh, 0 I think it's Platini. Yeah, Platini scoring. It was inevitable, almost inevitable. Uh, he scored uh, twelve minutes from the end. Yeah. The other two sides in Group 1, uh, Belgium opened with a 2-0 win over Yugoslavia. Where do you stand on Yugoslavia? I, I was telling you before we started recording, um, I've done an interview for this run of shows with the guys behind the jaws of victory. You, you've written an essay for them on Dundee. There's an essay on the Yugoslav team as well of the late yeah. 80s, early 90s. And I can't remember who the author was, but they do say that Perhaps the undoing for the Yugoslavs at the highest level was that they favoured technique over pragmatism and, and yes. they kept falling short. Uh, and when you look at what happens once the country fragments, and particularly with Croatia, the, the amount of talent coming through those, um, yes. those six socialist republics, it was just a conveyor belt of talent. Yeah, also, I mean, if you talk about other great underachievers, and I, you know, I bow to your knowledge on the history of Spanish football, but it always seemed to me that the great underachievers were countries of varied culture, if you see what I mean. You know, you would, it was always difficult, it seemed to me, for Barcelona and Real Madrid players to fuse in in a Spain team. And likewise, I think that Croatia especially, but Serbia to an extent, and even Slovenia have been punched much harder as individuals than 
than they tended to do as a group. Uh, yet another half-ass theory from me, but it it was it was true that they didn't really punch their weight. I, I, th I think the same might be said of Portugal. You know, who, who probably bangos the theory now because uh, United country, but that Portugal technically would be very comparable with the Yugoslavs, that they could, you know, pass, pass, pass all day, but they tended not to score the goals that their approach play deserved. Once Portugal invented Cristiano Ronaldo and, you know, became, you know, were able to, to finish teams off, they became trophy winners. And who knows what would have happened to to Yugoslavia, with whether they would eventually have broken through and and won something, but they they just were they were too often pretty, and 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 making up the numbers. On paper, this tournament looks really strong, but what happens next in Group One almost shoots that down because the French destroy what is a strong Belgian team five nil. Uh, there's a Platini hat trick, Jures and Fernandez top up the hat trick. Denmark bounced back from their narrow loss to France by beating Yugoslavia also by five goals to nil. Did such score lines in what on paper at least looked a lineup of eight very strong sides surprise you? Yeah, surprise and delight. And and really emphasized in particularly in retrospect, the swashbuckling nature of that tournament, the I don't know, the sort of feeling you know how it is when you get to the Champions League and 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 you you got the group stage and you can hardly keep your eyelids, yeah. uh, you know, apart. And you then suddenly it's February, and it's a knockout. There's only eight or maybe now sixteen teams left in it, and wow, this is every match matters. And I think because of this was only eight teams, the um the previous one, the the, the night sorry, not the previous one, but the the four team tournament was very good in nineteen seventy-six. And having only eight teams, it was do or die right from the start. Uh, or maybe that, that that's it was a psychological effect, but you felt you were every game was close to the final sort of thing. You didn't get KG you the only the opening game was KG. Everything else as, as I recall, was absolutely brilliant. And, uh, yeah, France against Belgium was just sheer majesty from, from Platini with his hat-trick. One of them a penalty. The hat-trick completed in the last minute. Always a nice uh, nice thing to do. Yes, and this brilliant Belgian team that we're talking about uh, gets absolutely smashed. It's just typical of the tournament. And, and of course, we the, the probably less surprising was Denmark's 5-0 thrashing of Yugoslavia. Because the Yugoslavs, you know, when their heads dropped, their heads dropped. You know, Arneson got a couple in that. Elkier scored again. That was a particularly particularly fine performance in uh, Lyon. You mentioned earlier that the Denmark-Belgium game in Group 1, the third game uh, for each team in that, uh, in that group, that that was the best game of the tournament for yeah. yourself. Yeah. Denmark were trailing Belgium by two goals to nil before I think it was Elkier grabbed a late winner. There's yeah. no dispute in the Danes' talent, but in some respects, we see them perhaps run into the same problems in Mexico 86 when mm -hmm. it was arguably an even better side and yeah. they were in complete command against Spain and somehow lose 5-1. Was this simply down to a, a lack of international experience on the part of the Danes? Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I think there was, there was an element of that. Also... I mean, I spoke 
about how brilliant Olsen was as a, an organizational and an attacking sweeper. I don't think he'll ever be remembered as one of the great defenders of all time. I don't think he was as good defensively as um, the great Italian libero, um, the one who died in a car crash. Um, Shirea. Shirea. He wasn't nowhere near as good a defense, defensive sweeper as Shirea. So I think, yes, they could be, I think they played in this sort of 3-5-2 formation and they would, they, you know, the, the wing backs would, would play as wing as the wing backs should as play as wingers. When they were vulnerable, they were very, very vulnerable. And and as you say, this was this was emphasized in two years later. France got dragged into a surprisingly difficult game with the Yugoslavs, although they'd already sealed their qualification, of course. I think that was eerily, well, almost identical to what happens with Jock Steen a year later, the Yugoslav uh, team doctor collapses on the pitch with a heart attack after the game, dies later in hospital. Um, the coach, uh, Toda Veselonovic, uh, resigns after the tournament. So France have got through 100% record, but did that Yugoslavia game perhaps hint at the vulnerabilities at the back that might cost them against Portugal in the in their semifinals? Yes, to concede two goals there i mean again it 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 goes to the goes back to the theme we're talking about as it was attack and counter attack let's see how many we can score and let's see how many you can score there, there was that sort of um ambiance about the place but once again uh, platini it was difficult enough that, that that france had to rely on platini to to score them out of trouble and and, and he got another hat trick Two hat-tricks in a row. Didn't need a penalty this time. All scored. And I just noticed this, actually, for the first time. I didn't realize that. That the hat-trick was scored in the space of 18 minutes of the second half, which is must have been must be one of the quickest hat-tricks ever scored in, uh, in international football. But that was him. He was, he was Superman. There's a generation of fans who will... Who, all, who think of him as a, a, you know, a dodgy character. Yeah. I think it's... I think it's wrong. I, 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 I really do think that his contribution to football, and, and I, I'll go beyond 1984, because we've already said it was up there with Maradona 86 as one of the great individual performance uh, contributions to an international tournament. But I think his contribution to football continued after he retired as a player, Platini, in particular... I'm not just talking about his time as manager of, of the French national team uh, with Papa and Cantona, but later when he went on to work for UEFA and FIFA. In my opinion, he has created the climate, the much better climate of football these days, where players aren't kicked out of games, where they don't get so many broken legs, where they, there are forwards have the advantage over defenders. Platini and Sepp Blatter were very much at the heart of those reforms after 1990, which created the more healthy atmosphere of football in which the likes of little men like Lionel Messi, Luka Modric have thrived instead of being cowed, you know? As Maradona had to play at the risk of life and limb every time he went out on a field, and that was wrong. And I think the the way Platini and, and Blatter created a better atmosphere is something for which this should be, which should be offset against any perceived transgressions.
still to come. Yes, it was a matter of intense frustration that you'd ring, you'd ring home, you know, and 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 somebody would say, "Did you see what happened in the cricket yesterday, or the Wimbledon tennis, or something?" Or you hear about John Barnes's goal in the Maracanã, and so on, and and you're saying, "Listen, never mind that bloody rubbish. Watch this tournament. We can't, you know." So it was, <laughs> it was, <laughs> I'll go to bloody Ireland for your holidays or something. Before I forget, I'll, I'll, I'll say this on the Maradona and Platini, that mid-80s period, because I'd, I'd say in 84, probably Platini might have had the edge because Maradona had had his problems at Barcelona. But those two, what they were doing in the mid-80s were, was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Is there a case for saying, though, that well, Maradona did it slightly above average team, but that Argentina team in 86 wasn't great. Platini achieved greatness within a team that was, within if not great, was, was, was yeah. bordering on greatness. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, but it, it, it is not, it's still, I think, I think that's true. All of what you said, I would, I would agree with. But, although probably Valdano would say he was a bit better than an ordinary player, but Burichaga might as well. But, yeah, what I would say is that, is, is that the, the, the thing that the two feats have in common is that France would not have won the European Championship in 1984 without Platini. They might have been one of the prettier teams because of Jures and Tigana, but uh, they wouldn't have won it. And I think that's that's the linking factor. And just on, um, just lastly, in terms of what, for me, Mark Platini out as such a distinctive player, we, we see these days any team with a free kick, any, they've always got a dead ball specialist now in pretty much every team. Back in that period, the late 70s, the 80s, mm-hmm. you didn't often see that. You'd see the Brazilians, but Platini his yeah. free kicks he everyone wanted f- to do it at school it was just <laughs> it, it was ridiculous you're, you're absolutely right nowadays we think of it as quite normal because of the you know the more efficient balls footballs you know that that and and the the, the greater ability to make a ball swerve and move so you know this is beckham range you know this is some but platini was probably you're quite right i think he was the first that you sort of went is this within Platini's range? Which, of course, it usually was, because he could put that bend and swerve, and he could get it up and bring it down, and uh, he, he could do anything. I mean, if if you look at his playlist, Platini of goals, he 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 wasn't uh, averse to a diving header. Yeah, he was. I mean, I mean, he was. Uh, you know, it was a pretty varied uh, repertoire. But yes, the free kick was definitely part of it. Do not foul a French team within 25 yards of goal if Platini's in it. No. Group two is a bit more tightly contested. I think going into the final game, perhaps all four sides might have been in with a chance of qualifying for the semi-finals. Both final group games are played on the same night, uh, the same time. Portugal, who I think were in their first international tournament since 66, they took a late lead against Romania and a game that would never be uh, forgotten. I don't think I ever saw my dad as happy as the night Spain beat West Germany with a, a late goal. And also, I remember it was the first live game, well, one of only two live games shown here in this country. For some reason, they decided yeah. to show that one. Uh, semi-finals in the final, probably because the England tour was over. Yeah, no, it was it was the West Germany Spain game. Oh, that's Bizarre. sorry, yeah, last game, last yeah. Game. So it was strange because the semi-finals weren't shown live. 
and Spain, they needed something in the final minute. They found it in the 90th minute through a headed goal from the centre-back, Antonio Macedo. Macedo, blonde, big blonde guy. Now, he'd already been one of the stars of the tournament for me for his defending. I thought he was an excellent defender, good in the air, big, imposing, daunting. Uh, and here he is coming up with, with the winner. No wonder you celebrated because you, you, he saved you from extra time. He did, no, yeah. We, no, we, uh, yeah. Just going out, going out. Just going out, yeah. 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 So, yeah, that, that Spanish team, I, I'm afraid uh, I can't condone the presence of Goyka Chea. No, I would agree, yeah. The butcher of Bilbao, the man who so badly injured Maradona. Anyway, he seemed to behave himself there. Camacho, I, I notice, I, I recall, being in the team, little stocky fullback, later became manager of Real Madrid. A lot of these guys were mentioning, I think Morton Olsen as well, uh, they were the socks rolled down brigade. Kuhlmans oh, yes. was the socks rolled down brigade. These yes. guys would have been worth a fortune in today's transfer market. The West Germans, Derwall goes after the game and they bring him Beckenbauer and that sets about the rebuilding of West Germany yes. as, a, as a real yes. force in the, in the late 80s. You could say, though, I mean, it, 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 with, uh, I'd, I'd missed out when I talked before about about the strong spine. Well, I, I missed out uh, Rummenigge, you know, it was a yeah. very, very good, good side. Lot, Lothar Mateus, for heaven's sake. God, as a Spaniard, you should be... He's still bathing in, in reflected glory for beating that lot. Uh, I noticed Rafael Gordillo being in that team. I used to like him, you know, Brilliant left, player. all left foot, tremendously dynamic front foot player par excellence, I would have thought. When you spoke earlier of the Germans, you, you were talking about Morten Olsen and what the West Germans would have given mm -hmm. for a, a sweeper like him yes, after Beckenbauer. Yes. Where did you stand, I think, on Stieliker? Because I think Stieliker, I'm... Yeah, I'm a tremendous player, but I was never quite sure what his best position was. Uh, I, I was never... He, the thing about Stieliker is I don't know if he played fullback, but he could certainly play anywhere. He could play as a sweeper. He could play as a centre-back. He could play as a defensive midfield. He could play as an attacking midfield. He was a goal scorer. And I think maybe he's one of those players that his versatility and his adaptability, he was, of, of course, he was a top player, but uh, an all-time great. Where, would, where do you stand on that? I, I would agree with you. I mean, I'd certainly take Morton Olsen yeah. as the leading Better sweep specialist. of that period. Yeah. Better, better specialist. I mean, Stilica, more forceful, maybe more mobile. But, uh, and, and yes, you know, let's, let's be honest, uh, you know, a, a very, very good player. Uh, in fact, once you, when you go, I, I'm glad you mentioned him because you go through that team and they're, they're, they're strong in every position and, and should have done better. Derval would, you know, won't, won't go down as one of their, their great managers. Of course, I think Bern Schuster was still refusing to play for the West Germans at that time. Yeah. You know, one of the great forgotten yeah. players, perhaps, of the 80s. He'd come in four years earlier, hadn't he, at the, yeah. at the European Championships and been the, the Enzo Schifo of his time, you know, the teenage sensation of the tournament. But, yeah, it, the more you think about it, the more you begin a chant of Derval out. Before we get to the semi-finals, a couple of questions for you. At this point, the Paddy Barkley Roadshow, that quartet of journalists mm. uh, having mm. a, uh, having the time of their lives in France. Yep. Putting on weight. <laughs> you, you've seen what the group stages have to offer. You're aware that you're witnessing something extraordinary. Yes. 
the lack of interest back home, were you aware that that was still an issue, that this tournament just wasn't registering back yes. home? Yes, it was a matter of intense frustration that you would, you'd ring home, you know, and, and, and somebody would say, did you see what happened in the cricket yesterday? And, and, or, or the Wimbledon tennis or something. Or you hear about John Barnes's goal in the American arms or so on. And, and you're saying, listen, never mind that bloody rubbish. Watch this tournament. We can't. You know, so it was, it was, I'll go to bloody Ireland for your holidays or something. Yes, it was frustrating to be there and to be unable to convey to people uh, the wonder of what you were, you were seeing. Yeah. I was taken by my dad regularly at that time to yeah. seeing England games and though at the England side back then wasn't in a particularly strong state though they did have, you know, the likes of John Barnes were starting to come through. Had England pipped Denmark to that qualifying spot at that stage of Bobby Robson's time with England Mm -hmm. you've got Mm -hmm. Brian Robson arguably at his peak Wilkins has earned the move to Italy Mark Haightley is emerging Shilton arguably at his peak Kenny Santum would that England team have added anything to that tournament or they would have just been ill-equipped to do much I would lean the the latter direction I I don't think they they were missed I, I mean I think England should have sent television cameras not a team Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it was the cameras we missed, not the players. I, I you know, no, I would, I would not have swapped uh, Denmark, not in a million years for that England team. No, I wouldn't even have swapped that Denmark for Scotland. Denmark had a had a game, a game plan, and uh, they stuck to it, and the, and 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 they were they were great to watch. France meet Portugal in the Stadio Velodrome in Marseille in the first semi-final. This is a game that gives us probably John Motson's greatest ever moment as a, as a commentator. If anyone hasn't seen that on YouTube, I think John Motson is on the, uh, on the brink of tears. It's, it's just unsurpassed the, the emotion from that game. And the Portuguese really did push the French again. I mean, again, the French almost throw it away in that game. It takes the genius of, of Platini and Tigana to, to pull them through. Yes, it, it, it certainly was. It was a, a wonderful game in that, on that beautiful pitch at the Velodrome in Marseille. I'm just trying to remember how the scoring went. Did, did France take the lead? The French took the lead and then it was 2-1 to Portugal. Uh, uh, the sub, the sub uh, Jordal, Ruiz Jordal scored twice. I remember a looping header and thinking, oh no. You see, you're to- you you're talking about about where France inexorable. Could you tell that from the first game? No, you could. You still couldn't. You thought, oh no, they're going to go out. But at the same time, there was this relentless wave upon wave of attack, wasn't there? And the game went well. It it went into extra time. Domergue, I think, who hadn't been one of the stars of the tournament, got his second goal, didn't he? And then. And then Platini got the winner. But that you mentioned, uh, we both mentioned Tigana earlier, and it was almost the assist, wasn't it? The 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 the, the move down the right wing, the cross, and the sort of delayed finish by Platini. Always think that the goals that take a while to go in are the most exciting. <laughs> you know, the the one where you nick it over the keeper and it it bobbles over the mud and just crosses the line as the defender tries to hook it out. Those are the, those goals are especially memorable. And I think Platini, the fact that it, as I recall, he took a touch, didn't he, before he scored? Yeah. And blasted it. 
uh, you know, a net bulger. Oh, what was it Marty said? I can't, I can't, obviously I, I, well, he, he, I think I was that, still in France. Uh, Tigana, 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 Platini, goal. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but the last line yeah. I never forget is, oh, I've not seen a game like this in years. And his voice yeah. is breaking at that point. And oh, you think, wonderful. You know, you, you cannot, it's one of the great commentary lines. It's just... Oh, that's wonderful. I must revisit it, revisit that then. But we have it, to watch it on highlights here. That was it. It was Saturday night, tucked yes. away in the schedules. It's, again, it, it, it's hard to understand because Europe, as you say, Ireland, everyone was watching these games, except... You know, it's... To get the full epic nature of a game, uh, highlights don't do it. This is why I, I still actually, you've rekindled my anger about the philistinism of the, of the British media at that time in not doing that tournament justice. Because an epic like match like that has to be watched in its entirety. I don't know if you or anybody listening to this uh, feels the same as me that that if you watch a football match, sometimes you can watch a football match, even if it goes to extra time and lasts two and a quarter hours in, in total. It feels like it's been a day. You feel like you've had a day at the test match. You feel like it's been eight hours. You can't remember coming into the ground. You can't remember where you parked your car. It's because time, you know, they say time passes quickly when you're enjoying yourself, but it also elongates. And this was one of those games that, you, you couldn't remember anything about it before the match. It would just, it had just occupied every corner of your mind. I'm, I'm just so pleased, although not surprised to hear that, that Motti captured the essence of it there. there. There are times when you don't need description, you need exclamation. The following night, Denmark uh, face off with Spain. Uh, Spain would become a, a problem for Denmark in, in the mid 80s. It goes to penalties. Did you give Spain a chance going into that game against the Danes? I think it was more of a hope that the opening match would be repeated in the final, you know, as perfect symmetry and so on. Because, you know, although I'd, I'd sort of fallen a bit in love with Denmark, I'd, with Belgium, I'd fallen in love with Denmark as well. And uh, it was, uh, I quite liked the Spanish actually as well, but obviously they weren't as exciting. So, yeah, I was, I was hoping that the Danes would win, but they didn't really. They took an early lead through Larby, and um, but Maceda, yeah, got the got the equaliser, and uh, and it went to extra time. And uh, I'm sort of I'm halting slightly because my hero, Prebenelkia Larsen, uh, missed the vital penalty, which was you know in in, in sporting terms, it was a bit of a tragedy because uh, he'd provided so much to the tournament. He was my man of the tournament. You know, apart from Platini, obviously. Penalties were still a novelty at this stage. I well, know we had Panenka you. in 76. You know if, yes, Panenka. Panenka, one of the few people whose name became a, a, a word, a descriptive word. Apart from the Cruyff turn, I can't think of too many. But of course, there's, there's a, a, a new word, a new word for a Panenka that goes wrong, <laughs> which is a, a, a Lookman. Right. <laughs> but. He's, he's not alone. Um, but anyway, yeah, sorry. The, the penalties could be exciting, but I don't think the European Championship 1984, if more games had gone to penalties, I, I don't think it would, would have been a better tournament. I, I like the fact that, that hardly any games went to... The, I think one, only one went to penalties, yeah? I think so, yeah. That's, uh, that's semi-final. And, and I think that was 
you know, that was that was that was one of the great pluses of the the tournament. Penalties, of course, are exciting. I do think extra time should be abolished. Uh, I really do believe that extra time is is wrong, and you should go straight to penalties. And they are exciting, but they're they're too nasty. They're just too nasty. And for the, for for the person who who misses, or the goalkeeper who lets the ball go through his legs, or something like that, after making eight world class saves earlier in the game. And I'm not just saying that because Brevin Elkjar missed one. Just on the Spanish side, I remember that the national team was a bit easier on the eye than some of their club teams because anyone listening to this might think Spanish football has always been easy on the eye. But that early 80s period of Spanish football, I remember Barcelona turning up at White Hart Lane in 82, Cup Winners' mm-hmm. Cup, with one of the most brutal club sides I've ever seen. There was a, yeah. a cynicism and a, a darkness to Spanish football at the time, wasn't yeah. there? We've already touched on Goya Caché's presence in that squad. You know, would we feel the same way about a Spanish team that that had him in it? You know, than 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 Spanish teams that had Xavi and Iniesta. You know, I mean, it's it was a dark period in the world, and 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 it was. I can remember brutal Barcelona sides. Yeah, I can remember Nadal's uncle. I mean, he was a dirty sod. You know, so uh, yeah, Spanish football. You know, equated more to bullfighting than tiki taka in those yeah. days. Uh, although, yeah, they could they could play as well, obviously. But uh, no, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the beautiful game. No, not the way it later became under uh, Aragonés and, um, and and you know the later El Bosque, yeah, yeah. So, El so Bosque, yeah. We go to the final at the Parc de France. Uh, the game is at least shown live in the UK. Ooh, and... Glory be. <laughs> We've got, um, I mean, Platini gives the French the lead on 57 minutes, a uh, free kick spilled by Luis Arcanada, the Spanish yeah. uh, skipper in goal. He was, uh, he was probably one of Europe's finest keepers, but also was, yeah. but, but prone to high-profile errors, yes. I think it's fair remembered, to say. Yeah, he, he definitely remembered as a, as a dodgy keeper, which is ridiculous, really, when you, when you look at, uh, at the career he had. But uh, yeah, and 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 the fact that he was captain of the side, you know, that that tells you about about the trust that that Munoz uh, had had in him. But uh, yes, it was it, it was very unfortunate that he made that mistake. Although it, I suppose it settled settled France's nerves, but only slightly because the the Spanish just stuck in there. In fact, the second goal didn't go in until the last minute, was it? Yeah, the French had all had a player sent off by then. I think that was Yvonne it was Leroux. Leroux. It was yeah, he keeps popping up and not in a <laughs> not in a nice way. <laughs> but, did the um, tournament did the tournament deserve a better final? Yeah, I remember thinking that at the time that it would have been nice to have a nice four two or three two or something like that, uh, and a more open game and and perhaps in a final as opposed to an opening match, France Denmark would have provided that. But no, by the narrowest of margins, Spain deserved to to be there. But France undoubtedly deserved to win it, and 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 for their team to go down uh, as one of as one of the all time greats. Even though there were players in it, I mean, we talked about Domergue, uh, who scored two vital goals. Uh, the second goal in the final was Bruno Bellon. Uh, Lacombe was up front. You know, these these are not uh, great players, but they did have five. Uh, in my opinion, great players. They would be uh, bossies at the back, 
the, the you know their version of Morton Olsen. Uh, Max Bossis, I thought, was a terrific player. And uh, and then you take the four midfielders, Fernandes, Platini, Gires and Tigana, and you've got your five great players. The thing they have in common with the 98 team, they were better to watch than the 98 team, but they lacked a world-class striker. Yeah. So it seems to be a pattern in French football up until that point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, if, if you were to have added, um, you know, Elkia, to that French team, you know, they'd, they'd probably, everybody else would have gone home before the semi-final, but and said, you know, fair enough, boys, you can have it. But, you know, you're quite right that the French often sort of stick a little bit like uh, the Brazil team of 19, um, when they played Scotland, 1982. That Brazil team, you know, they they didn't have a, a centre forward to compare with the other members of the team, you know. So, yeah, it sometimes, it sometimes happens. But the, with French, it seems to be, a, you know, a recurring theme. And yet the France, this is the country that produced one of the great goal scorers of the last half century, Jean-Pierre Papin. And, and not to mention Eric Cantor, uh, who was a one-in-two striker at international level. But they, they, just that midfield alone. It, they would say, oh, that's one thing for sure. If that had been a five-a-side tournament, they would have won it by more. Had the World Cup been in 84, was there any country out there that could stop that French team? Well, with Maradona around, you have to think about Argentina, I suppose. Brazil at that time? Um, I, I don't think so. I think France was the best team in the world. The only thing is Maradona, because he was, he was, he and, he and Platini were supermen. To have them, I mean, this is why I was so lucky in my career. No sooner had Maradona and uh, Platini left the stage then Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, Lionel Messi came along you know there's probably only 10 years between them maybe so how blessed was I to have spent 40 years at the top level of football following and to have seen those two great contests between great great all-time great players people are the luckiest people in the world that's what the song says I think I am and in your long career as as a journalist where do you rank Euro 84 and I'm going to bow down to your much, much greater experience I mean, than mine. 19 tournaments, 10 European Championships, 9 World Cups. And where? You're asking me, where does... Where does Euro 84, yeah. Numero uno. Numero uno. Yeah. And no Definitely. one saw it. No one, no one saw it. I told you I was lucky. <laughs> For me, Euro 2000 had echoes of the 84 tournament it, probably the only tournament where I've seen a nil-nil draw in the semi-finals Italy Holland and thought wow that was a game but all too often I think that the, the more expanded tournaments got the less interesting yeah. they got for me yeah. but Euro 84 was just yeah but you're quite right about low scoring game I mean uh, I would say one of the best teams the games I ever saw was in Germany 2006 the semi-final Germany, Italy, and I found my notes on that game the other day, and the page was almost empty. It just had substitutions and a couple of goals and a couple of events. Uh, and it was 120 minutes, I think, uh, in Dortmund, but there were hardly any chances in the game. And yet I remember it as one of the greatest games I've ever seen in a tournament. So, yeah, yeah, you can. Uh, 2006, I liked. I mean, there've been other good tour- t- tournaments that have had great phases, but I've never seen one that was so consistently good as Euro 
1984. I appreciate your time, Paddy, and I'm, I'm glad we got the opportunity to talk about one of my favourite international tournaments. Also, I feel it was worthwhile just to hear your pronunciation at the start of charcuterie. That will live with me forever. <laughs> I should have said sausages, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, tell us where people can find your work. You also do a podcast as well, don't you? And and, and your do. social media. Give us all the information yeah, that you well, want to I, be out I, there. Uh, on Twitter, it's at Paddy Barclay, all one word. And I also do a podcast called The Perspective Football Podcast. You can follow that at perspectivepod underscore. It's a, the Perspective Football podcast, which I do with, uh, at the time of at the time we we're speaking, he's still a student. He's very much, I think, going to be a star of the football media in the future. His name's Omar Garrick, and Omar is my co-presenter on the Perspective Football podcast. Thank you to Patrick Barkley. There are links to the show. Paddy co-hosts the Perspective Football Podcast and also to his Twitter in the show notes and a multitude of various links to the 84 European Championships. There is another Euro special on the way. Look out for that and the new series with 25 new episodes is on its way too. Bear with me, it's a big undertaking. Please do rate, review and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts if you're an Apple user. That, unfortunately, still remains the best way for any podcast to grow an audience. Thank you for listening. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts with Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts with Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me at Shorts with Short at 1607westegg.com. All my work is at danielruistizen.com. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 Synthpop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. <laughs>